Well, good morning. We are continuing our sermon series as we're working through the community Bible reading experience. Uh, if you're not with us for the first time, what we're doing is, as a church, we're encouraging each of us to read through the New Testament over a period of about eight weeks. Uh, and then we pick out a passage from that reading. And, just, and we also then in life groups and Sunday school classes and things like that, settings like that, we're being guided through a series of questions to help us understand more about who God is and who we are and how we can live for him. And today we come to a passage that when you first hear it, you think, well, wait a second. And we're going to jump into it. So hang with me and we'll work through it together this morning. But before we do, just a little bit about about Colossians. Paul, along with other letters that we wrote that we read today, read this past week, the church in Colossae had some unusual circumstances that they were battling. There was there was a group called the Gnostics who were teaching uh, that really the physical world was, was really an illusion. Uh, that really, in fact, it was influenced by a Greek philosophy, that really, in fact, the, the spiritual was really all that was real. Everything else was kind of a mirage. And along with that teaching, uh, they taught that to really know Christ, there was a, there was a kind of a, almost a secret knowledge that only certain people had access to. It was almost a... a, a you were entered into the kingdom by intellectual knowledge and access to this to this uh, specific knowledge about Christ. And so Paul writes to this. He must address it head on because that's obviously wrong. It's heresy. The kingdom of God is not only based upon knowing God with our heart, but all our head, but also our heart and our soul. Uh, intellectual capacity doesn't determine whether we get into the kingdom or not. I'm thankful for that personally. Um, but what Paul does is he, he in the, to, the, to the Colossians, he in the first few chapters, kind of lays out some theological framework. He, he, it's pretty good stuff, but really pretty deep stuff. He talks about how Christ uh, is preexistent, that he's eternal, uh, that nothing has been created except through him, that he always has been, always will be, uh, and always is. And he talks about how Christ is, is superior to all beings, including angels and other creatures. And then it talks about how Christ is the way, that you, how he is the way to salvation and all the things he's done for us. And then he gets to the second part of Colossians. He kind of moves from here's the theory. Here's the truth. Now let's get practical. How do you apply this? How do you put it into practice? For example, immediately preceding this passage that was just read in the first 17 verses of Colossians 3, we read that we are to put off the old self, you know, who we were before Christ, the attitudes, the actions, the behaviors before we came to faith in Christ, and to put on a new self, the person that we are now in Christ, to live into that and, and to follow his values and, and, and characteristics and his priorities. But then in verse 18, ending in, and in, in running through verse 1 of chapter 4, he gets down to brass tacks. He gets very personal and very specific. And he focuses in on relationships. Okay, so he looks at marriage. He looks at the parent-child relationship. He looks at slave-master, which back then, just a few words, that would have been the primary work relationship that people would have had. It's certainly different now in our day and age. Thank God for that. But So it's kind of an employer-employee relationship. And, and, he, and he says, in a sense, how do you play this out in those relationships? And he gives us some, some specific ideas and instructions about that. Kind of where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. Because if you think about it, in relationship, that's where we grow. I mean, we don't learn patience unless we're in a relationship with somebody. We don't learn forgiveness or grace 
all those all those things. We don't learn them unless we are in a relationship with somebody where we have to practice them and learn them or offer them or receive them. And so Paul now gets to this passage and he in verse 18, he jumps right from the proverbial frying pan into the fire. Wives, he says, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, that sounds politically incorrect to us, doesn't it? I'm aware it can be touchy for some of us here, but I believe as we look at this word and the rest of what Paul says, we're going to see that God's word is always relevant, always true, always practical and life giving. Besides, I checked with Nancy, my wife, and she gave me permission to to speak on this passage uh, this morning. So anyway, Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Now, as I said, these verses, especially verse 18, sound politically incorrect to our 21st century ears. But they also sounded politically incorrect to the ears of those in the first century A.D., those in the Roman Empire, but for different reasons. We hear it today and we think, whoa, uh, Paul said that? Isn't that a little chauvinistic? But in Paul's day, on the other hand, they were shocked for a different reason. Women were considered possessions. They were, quite frankly, expendable. When a man died, his inheritance went to his son, not his wife. A man could have as many wives as he wished, but a woman could only have one husband. A man could not a man could divorce his wife for any reason at all. But a woman could not initiate a divorce with her husband. Women weren't allowed to hold political office or pursue a career. They were in pagan Roman society, second class citizens. I mean, even a, a male slave could be given his freedom and eventually become a Roman citizen with all the full rights of citizenship. But as far as the Romans were concerned, a woman would always be a woman. And then along comes Jesus Christ and the early church and Christianity and the role and status of women in society began to change somewhat because Christianity offered a a radical view of humanity. Paul himself wrote in Galatians 3, 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. In other words, Paul is saying in his world wasn't that much different than ours in many ways. There were barriers Uh, in existence, dividing people based upon gender or race or ethnicity or nationality or or socioeconomic status. And Paul says in the church, in the body of Christ, because we have faith in Christ, all those barriers are are to be dissolved. Our primary identity is in Jesus Christ. And so he says, slave, free, Jew, Greek, male, female, you're all one in Jesus Christ. You know, when you look at it uh, throughout history, at its best, at its best, Christianity has always sought to elevate the poor, the oppressed. It's always sought to elevate the role of women. So what is Paul talking about when he says, wives, submit to your husbands? Well, let's first say what it's not. It does not mean that a wife is of lesser value or importance. Both husband and wife Male and female are equally valued by God and they should be by us and by each other. Second, it does not mean that a wife is to be a doormat at the beck and call of her husband. Marriage is to be a partnership where each helps and supports the other. So what does it mean? Well, I think it's helpful for us to look, understand that the Greek word that's used for submit here 
is also used by Paul in Ephesians 5, another passage we're going to look at in just a second, and Titus 2. And it's also used by Peter in 1 Peter 3. And the word submit here is in a tense that indicates a voluntary choice, a willing, intentional choice. It's, it does not mean yielding to authority because of force or superiority, of, of knuckling under or submitting like in a wrestling hold or something like that. Well, what else? It's also important to look at other passages of Scripture and let Scripture interpret Scripture. So uh, I'm going to focus for a few minutes on Ephesians 5, uh, also written by the Apostle Paul. And what he does there is similar to what he does in Colossians 3. The language and the sentiment is very similar. He takes uh, the three relationships, male or husband, wife, child, parent, slave and master. And he applies the same sort of instructions. Uh, and people often begin reading at verse 22, but really, to put it all together rightly, you should begin at verse 21, where he says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there's to be a, a mutual submission and service in all of our relationships. Paul is not setting up a priority of value, he's explaining how we are to serve one another and be Christ like in all of our relationships. Now, there's a parallel, we're told, in Ephesians 5 between the church's relationship with Christ and the relationship between husband and wife. In fact, the husband is told to love his wife as Christ has loved the church. Which, if you think about it, means the, the husband is to put his wife's interests before his own. He is to serve her. He is to love her, to sacrifice for her, to be willing to die for her. That's the example that Christ set for us as husbands. And that's our call and responsibility. Liz Curtis Higgs um, was once one of the most famous and raunchiest disc jockeys in America. Her show came on after Howard Stern's on the radio. And in fact, they produced it in the same studio. And one day um, Stern said to her, Liz, you really got to clean up your act, which should really tell you something about her show. If you're familiar at all with Howard Stern. She was a militant feminist because of the abuse she had suffered at the hands of men in her early life. But she had a Christian friend who kept inviting her to church. And finally, one day, she agreed just to get her offer back. She said, OK, I'll go with you just this one time. The Sunday she showed up, the pastor happened to be speaking on Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your husbands. Not a good place to start with, a, with her. And so during this sermon, she was getting angrier and angrier until, until she heard him teach on the responsibility of the husband. And she heard him paraphrase it like this. Husbands, you sacrifice yourself. You give yourself for your wife, just like Jesus Christ sacrificed himself for the church and died for her. She heard this and leaned over to her friend and whispered, I'd willingly give myself to a man who was willing to die for me. And Liz's friend whispered back, but Liz, there is a man who died for you, Jesus Christ. It wasn't long before Liz gave her life to Christ and she gave up her DJ mic for a speaker's mic who travels around speaking of the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. So, so where does the rubber meet the road? It, it, in the, and it certainly does in our relationships and it certainly does in marriage. And Paul says there is to be a mutual service and love. That the woman is to serve and respect her husband and the husband is to serve and love his wife, just as Christ does the church. Now, we're going to move on to, there's more to be said about this, but we have to look at the other relationships as well. 
But just another word about marriage. You know, people are watching us. They're, they're watching Christians to see if there's any difference in their marriages. They're watching to see if the fact that we follow Christ and claim Christ makes any difference in the quality and nature and success of our relationships. And so the first relationship that Paul addresses when calling us to, to put um, our behavior into belief, to practice what we preach, is that of the husband and the wife. Next, Paul takes us to the relationship of parent and child. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Which harkens back to the fifth psalm, or excuse me, the fifth commandment in Exodus 20, where God says, honor your father and mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord is giving you. And so as kids and even as adult children, we are to honor our parents. We are to obey them as long as our obedience to them doesn't cause us to disobey God. In fact, the relationship we have with our parents can often be a, a direct reflection of our relationship that we have with God. When we honor our parents, we honor God. When we dishonor our parents, we displease God. Now, as parents, we, we love this verse. Children, obey your parents in everything. Um, but then Paul turns the spotlight on to us, especially fathers. Verse 21, fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Now, although mothers certainly can embitter children, he focuses on dads. Why? Well, again, remember the context. First century Roman Empire. Men ruled. Dads ruled. Children were viewed as possessions legally. Doesn't mean that they weren't loved. Doesn't mean that they weren't cared for. It's just that they were much, much less protected under the law. They were much, much less, much, much more vulnerable than kids are today. What dad said was a law of the house and there really were no checks and balances, no negotiations. And so as you can imagine, with virtually absolute power in that culture, dads could become overly strict and squelch a kid's spirit. The same dynamic is at play in our culture, isn't it? We've all seen it happen. Maybe we've experienced it in our own relationship with our father. Perhaps we as dads have caught ourselves doing that. And sometimes, dads, we do it because we're unhappy with our own lives. Sometimes because we're insecure. Maybe we want to control something or someone because the rest of our lives feels out of control. Often it comes from a good motive, from an instinct to protect and want the best for our kids. But even in those cases, we can end up overdoing it and squelching our kids' development through control and overprotectiveness. Sort of like retired NBA star Charles Barkley. He was asked how he would handle his teenage daughter's future boyfriends. And he said, I figure if I kill the first one, word will get out. <laughs> that, could cause, that could cause bitterness. You know, as dads, we can struggle with expecting too much of our kids. Of being unrealistic. Of expecting them to be a certain way or to respond a certain way or to think a certain way. And we put too much pressure on them. We are to challenge them to grow and to develop their, their abilities and talents to the best that they can. We want the best for them. We want to push themselves and to succeed. But if we consistently place unrealistic expectations on them, a wedge will develop. Bitterness can take root and they can end up with a hard heart toward us 
and even more tragically, a hard heart towards God. So Paul says in Ephesians 6, 4, fathers, do not exasperate your children instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. There was a study done by a, a man named Dr. Paul Viz with the goal of determining um, any sort of patterns or common denominators in the lives of famous atheists. The common denominator he found was a physically or emotionally absent or abusive father. So, for example, Thomas Hobbes, his father was an Anglican clergyman who got into a fight with another man in the churchyard and left his family. Ludwig Feuerbach, at age 13, was abandoned by his father who openly took up living with another woman in another town. Voltaire fought constantly with his father, causing him later to reject his surname. Bertrand Russell and Nietzsche lost their fathers at the age of four. Sartre's father died before he was born. Camus was a a year old when he lost his father. Hitler's father was a violent man who, who consistently and regularly beat Adolf, his mother, and even the dog. He died when Adolf was 14. And Stalin's father also regularly and brutally beat his son. The point is God has designed the human family in such a way that the father has an incredibly crucial role in the development of his children, especially the sons. As fathers, we are to discipline, yes, but, but not to the point of driving our children away from us or from God. Instead, we are to love them, we are to encourage them, we are to believe in them, to bring out the best in them. And when we do discipline, to do so in a way that leads to growth and maturity, not bitterness and rebellion. Lastly, Paul turns to the slave-owner relationship. Again, with more the employer-employee relationship for our context. And, and, And Paul says, do your best even when they're not around. Do your best in whatever you're doing, do it as doing it for the Lord. You know, Bill Hybels, he was one of our speakers this past week at the conference Patty referenced. Uh, He wrote a great book several years ago entitled Who You Are When Nobody Is Watching. And the gist of it is that our character is most revealed when nobody is watching us. Will we practice what we preach, not only in public, but in private, too? Because that's when the real you, the real me is 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 seen. And so for us as employees, do we do our very best at all times when the boss is looking but most especially when the boss isn't around. We are walking, the Apostle Paul asserts, not for Tony's, not for Phillips, not for Sonic Regional, not for First Covenant, not for USD 305. We're working for the Lord. And the, the, the compensation that really counts is, is the reward that comes from God. Whatever you do, he writes, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It's Jesus Christ you're serving. And finally, Paul turns the spotlight on employers. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Employers will be held accountable for how they treat their employees. Not just how they pay them, but how they treat them personally. There was a study done in England. Uh, they followed 6,400 civil servants in London. And they were studied and asked questions like, do you ever get criticized unfairly? Do you ever get praised for your work? And 10 years, for 10 years they followed these employees. And they discovered after 10 years that the employees who reported low scores on their boss's fairness were 30% more likely to have coronary heart disease, stress, being beat down. 
And they predicted that in the U.S. the numbers would be even higher because we tend to work more hours. God is a fair master. He is a, a just God. And he expects employers also to be just and fair. The Old Testament is full of God's commands concerning this. For example, in Deuteronomy 24, do not hold back the wages of a hired man. Otherwise, he may cry to the Lord and you will be guilty of sin. And so we have the responsibility and opportunity to model the kind of behavior that our Heavenly Father shows towards us in our relationships with those under us and those we employ. Because the, because the attitude we have towards them has consequences both for us, but also for them. So God's word has hit us pretty hard today. Paul has pinned us down in our marriage relationships, in our parent-child relationships, especially the one that fathers have with their children. And he's pinned us down in our work relationships. And he's saying, your theology must be put into practice. Your belief must translate to right behavior. Honor God in your relationships, which can be difficult to do and challenging to do. And there's much, much more we could say about this, especially the marriage relationship. So if you have questions, give me a call or get in contact with me. But the good news is that when the rubber does meet the road, we can be the people that God has called us to be. Because remember, God will never call you to do something without supplying the power to do it. In our weaknesses, strength is made perfect. God never calls us to, to be someone or to relate to somebody in a certain way without helping us to do it. And so may our marriages today be marked by service and sacrifice, by love and respect. May our parent-child relationships be distinguished by obedience and love and grace. And may our work be honoring to God, both as employers and employees. May they be honoring to God, our Lord and our Master. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We're grateful for, for uh, its relevance. It spoke to people in the first century and it speaks to us in the 21st. So, Lord, I pray that in our relationships, in all our relationships, marriage, family, parent, child, employer, employee, neighborhoods, Lord, friendships, that we would honor you. And they would be marked by a, a mutual submission a desire to put the other person's needs first, to serve them, to, to sacrifice for them, to model Christ for them and to them. So Lord, help us to be those sorts of people. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen.